But we're going to read from John 17, 20 to 23. And this is Jesus and his prayer for his disciples. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. This is the word of God. Hey guys, uh, great to be up here with you guys again. My name is Jacob. If I haven't met any of you yet, um, which I haven't because some of you guys are brand new, so good to be here with you today. Um, we're going to be finishing our time, which we've been in for the last four weeks, in this upper room discourse. I've loved um, walking through this with you guys over these last four, four weeks of January. It's sort of like a really nice way to start the year. Um, and I just figured we should probably let you know what's coming next as well. From next week on a Sunday morning for the that week and, and for four weeks, Jesus is going to be leading us through a vision series, really just resetting us and reframing us on who we are as a church, uh, what under God we're hoping for in, in the year and the years ahead. And, um, and like Jesus is even saying, if you are thinking about uh, this church and, and what potential place you might have in it, um, these next four weeks coming up are going to be great weeks to be at as we, um, as we unify together as a church around a really important vision. But, uh, but today we're finishing a series in the upper room. Now, this week, I, I finally started watching some of the TV show, The Chosen. Can I just get a show of hands who has seen some of The Chosen? Quite a few hands out there. I reckon that's a pretty accurate gauge because I reckon if there was a Venn diagram of people who watch The Chosen and people who are happy to put their hand up when asked to in a sermon, 100% <laughs> overlap. So we've got you all out there. And um, for anyone here, though, who isn't uh, familiar with The Chosen, it's a made-for-YouTube, independently-funded dramatization of Jesus' life filmed in Texas. And until this week, I hadn't watched any of The Chosen because that description, a made-for-YouTube, independently-made dramatization of the life of Jesus filmed in Texas, doesn't sound like the best watching. But people have kept telling me, it's good, it's good, you've got to check it out. Some of them have been probably more than just encouraging. They've almost been outraged that I could be employed in the service of Jesus without having watched him portrayed by an American named Jonathan on YouTube. <laughs> but they've been pushing. And so this week, uh, my wife Sarah put it on and I sat down and, and I watched. And for everyone who's been encouraging me to give it a go, I'll say it's good. It, they've done a really good job. I was pleasantly surprised. Um, they've done actually a pretty, pretty impressive job with it. And it's becoming quite popular. I read that it's already had 400 million views across the world. And I think the reason this show has been successful and why it works, and I think why I connected with it on some level as I watched it, is that it, they do a really good job, the people who made this TV show, of showing the fact that Jesus and his followers were real people. They were people that, if you had been there in that place in that time, you could have chatted with, laughed with, ate a meal with, they're real. That the only thing that is stopping us from having a real face-to-face -face conversation with Jesus is fundamentally time. That if we were in Nazareth 2,000 years ago, you could have gone and had a chat with Jesus. And it's helpful because I think often you can end up putting Jesus in this kind of box with like Gandalf and Dumbledore as kind of these out there good beings. But forget the fact that Jesus was a real person. 
And if you had been around 2,000 years ago, you would have had the opportunity to listen to his claims that he made about himself, particularly big ones like he was sent from God, uh, and you would have been able to push and to probe and to look at his life and see, does what he's saying about himself match up with his character, his behavior, his actions? And that's what Jesus' first followers got to do. They got to actually see firsthand, does Jesus' life match up with the claims he makes about himself? But we aren't in that position, are we? We're not in Nazareth 2,000 years ago. We are here now. And as people in this room, we're, we're broadly in one of two kind of categories. We're either people who have decided to follow Jesus, and along with that, we have a hope and a desire for those that we know and love to follow him also. But sometimes, if we're honest, we can be a little bit like frustrated and think, wouldn't it just be easier if Jesus just showed up and spoke to them himself? That we can kind of put out this gospel message, but it would just be nice to feel like there's something a bit more concrete that we could just point to and say, look at this, here's how you can know it's true. If you're not in that category of people, you may be in the category of just people who are exploring. Maybe you're coming along here, yourself asking the question, are the claims that Jesus made true? And how can we know? Now, Jesus isn't completely out of reach. He's a, he's a historical person. And you can use the same, I guess, historical methods for verifying him as you might with someone like Alexander the Great or, or Julius Caesar, that kind of thing. But is there more than that? Is there something actually here and present in the world today that someone could look at and say, that is, that is evidence that there is something going on here. That is evidence that these claims aren't just these kind of wild, crazy things said 2,000 years ago, but there is some truth and some weight behind them. And what we're going to be seeing in the passage that Jez just read for us is Jesus pointing to what he thinks is going to be the thing that people will see and conclude that he is who he said he is. And it's the unity of the church. We've been looking at this upper room discourse for a few weeks, and it's what this is, it's the night before Jesus died, as Jez said. Jesus has got his followers around a dinner table where they're sharing the Passover meal, and he's preparing them for what is to come. And, um, and he's been doing that in a whole bunch of ways. Last week, for example, we looked at how Jesus prepares his followers to be hated. If that was your first week, and you came and you heard that it's all about getting hated, and then you've come back this week, Awesome job, you guys. Um, thanks for coming back to that. This week, though, it's a lot more uh, uplifting. He's actually preparing his followers for a life of love. And specifically what we're looking at today is a prayer that Jesus prays at the end of this dinner party that he's held. And he prays firstly for himself uh, and what he's about to do. He then prays for those who are in the room with him, his closest friends, so that they would be uh, equipped and enabled to continue walking in his way. And then... He prays, he changes gear a little bit, and he prays for another group of people, which is everyone who is going to follow him who is not there yet, even those who aren't even born yet. This is what he says in verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So Jesus is fully expectant that his movement will not end with his death, but that his disciples will go out, they'll spread this message, and people will believe. And that's kind of who we are. That's how we fit into this, the fact that we're gathering here 2,000 years later in Sydney. And Jesus' prayer is a prayer for all these people, the people who are to come and to follow. And what we get in this prayer is this amazing insight to what it is that Jesus most deeply and profoundly wants for his people. And what he wants is a united church. 
And so as we look at these words now, I'm just going to pray because we have the opportunity to be asking along with Jesus for his prayer to be answered in us. And so even as we get into it now, I'm just going to pray that God would be using Jesus' words to bring about the thing that Jesus most deeply wants, which is a united church. So let's pray. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, as we look at your words right now, we just ask that, that, what, that what would happen would be the thing that Jesus most desperately wants, which is that people like us to be united and to be united in such a way that people look in and see the evidence of your reality. Lord, we just ask in the heat with the fan noises going on, with any birds if they've made their way in yet, with, with whatever else is going on in our, in our life, that we would be able to hear from you now, that you would speak to us and that you would transform us as a people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we see in this passage is that the key thing that Jesus is asking for for his followers is that they might be united, they might be one. Look at verse 21 and verse 23. Jesus prays about those who will believe through the disciples' teaching that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be in us. We see it again in verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one. Jesus wants his church to be able to be described as being perfectly one. So it's worth thinking about what Jesus means by this. What does it mean to be perfectly one? I think there are, there are two types of ones that you can have. And both of them are in Star Wars. So you have to indulge me in a Star Wars illustration. Normally when I think of a Star Wars illustration, I say, nah. But this, I'm just going to go ahead with it because I want it this time around. If you're not a Star Wars fan... Um, thanks for sitting through. Get into Star Wars. Andor is out. It's a fantastic TV show. <laughs> Up there with The Chosen. But in Star Wars, you've kind of got the two main sides. You've got, uh, you've got the Empire, which is like, they're the ones who are made up predominantly of stormtroopers. They're clones. They're identical. They're in formation. They've got no personal identity. There's no difference with them whatsoever. They're a homogenous group. And you could say about that group that, that they are one. They are, they are united. They are the same as each other. They're all on about the same purpose. There's also the other main side in Star Wars, the rebels, good guys, who are, who are this kind of hodgepodge mix of people, different alien species, different personalities, they, different ideas. But again, they are one. They're united together despite their difference. And it's possible to read Jesus' words like the thing that he might be hoping for the church would be some level of kind of complete uniformity. No differences, no denominations, no difference in how churches express different things so that you might maybe go to church the other side of the world and you'd see the exact same formula, the exact same style of music and teaching as you'd see here. That's one way to interpret Jesus' words to say that there'll be just no difference. That everywhere you go, that all Christians would be the same. They would leave their personalities at the door and just join this one big culture. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. And you can see that because of what he says. He says, he asked that the church would be one just as you the Father in me and I in you, so they may be in us. Jesus points to the relationship between himself and the Father who are, who are different and yet deeply, personally, intimately connected. And he says this is the oneness that he wants from the church. The oneness that individual believers have with him. Again, we're not Jesus, we are separate. But for someone who is in Christ, we are, we are linked, we are in relationship, we are connected. 
This is what Jesus is envisioning. It's envisioning a group of people who, despite their differences, are joined together by a supernatural bond. A bond that comes by mutually experiencing the transforming, life-giving reality of forgiveness that comes through the blood of Jesus. This is what the gospel message does. The, the gospel message, the key message of Christianity fundamentally, is that we are sinners, we've rebelled against God, we are broken, we've created a, a chasm between us and God. And to bridge that divide, Jesus came into the world, lived a perfect life, and ultimately that led him to dying on a cross. And as his blood was poured out, we knew that ours wouldn't have to. That as he died, he died for our sins, so that what we might have is his identity as a child of God. And for the individual Christian, that is what we've experienced. And the main metaphor that Jesus and the New Testament writers use to describe the church or, or believers is that of a family. That as this vertical thing goes on, as we become connected back to God and adopted into his family as a father, with Jesus as our sibling, what that also means is that everyone else who has gone through that process is now a brother or a sister in Christ. And what that means is that people who are otherwise very different or otherwise may not have mixed that much get brought together. You see this in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 28, where Paul is summing up the result of this gospel reality, where he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's not saying that there's no such thing as male or female. He's not saying there's no such thing as a, as a previous ethnic identity or that that gets left behind. What he's saying is the things that used to divide people, Jews and Gentiles not mixing, maybe men and women doing things differently, um, slaves and free people operating different circles, those divides get broken down. So although people are different, they are joined together in relationship with one another. And this is why, and this is like just a crazy thing to think about, this is why Christianity was the first truly multi-ethnic religion. Tim Keller writes about this phenomenon and just explains the difference between Christianity and at that point in time, any religion that had existed on the earth. He says, at the time of Jesus, each race, country and location had its own gods and therefore no one ever chose their gods or their religion. Rather, you simply inherited the religion that was essentially an extension of your culture. That meant that all the people who shared your religion were culturally homogenous. Your race determined your faith. It also meant that your race and culture received divine sanction and could never be critiqued. But Christians believed that there was one true God and everyone should put their faith in him. That meant not only was your faith independent of your race, but it was more fundamental. It gave you a bond with all other Christians that was deeper than any other. When a person of any race or culture put their faith in Jesus Christ, it gave them a new perspective on their inherited culture and formed a new multiracial, multiethnic community, the first one formed by any religion. This is the fundamental unifying power of the gospel that Jesus is alluding to in his prayer. A shared experience of grace and belonging that means that if you are a Christian, you can travel to somewhere on the other side of the world, to France, to Brazil, to North America, and you can come face to face with someone who maybe doesn't speak a language that you have spoken, maybe they haven't got any other life circumstances that you share, but you can honestly and truly view them as a sister or as a brother. That's the unity that the gospel brings about. 
this deep, supernatural, invisible bond that joins God's people together across the globe. But is this simply what Jesus is praying about in this prayer? That, that simply his grace would be uniting people in an unseen way? Is it enough then, I guess, to fulfill Jesus' prayer for us to say, okay, I've got it. We are a big global family of Christians. Now I'm just going to get on with my life and just know that that's out there. Well, no. And here's how we know why. Jesus says that the unity of the church will be visible. Look at what he says in verse 21. He just, he's just prayed that they may be one so that the world may believe you have sent me. He does it again in verse 23. He's just said that he's praying that they would be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. The type of unity that Jesus is praying for among his people is not only an unseen eternal reality, but it is something that is visible and practical. Something that might be seen and something that might even cause someone to believe in Jesus, in his message. Francis Schaeffer was an author in the 20th century and arguably one of, if not the greatest Christian mind of the last hundred years. He was such a great mind that his books are too hard to read and so now he's often forgotten. That's the trick. If you're going to be like known for being great, you've got to be like 80% great so people can still connect with you. <laughs> but 50 years ago, he wrote a book near the end of his life um, called The Church at the End of the 20th Century. And he was just reflecting on... on on a global church that had stopped growing, or particularly, um, I would say, a church in the West that had stopped growing, and he's pondering what would it take for, for the church to reconnect and to be known and for, to start growing again. And he focuses on these verses here in what he calls the final apologetic. An apologetic being really a defense of the faith. faith. You might think of an argument about Jesus rising from the dead or an argument of God existing. That's an apologetic. And he says that Jesus points here to the final apologetic. And what he says is that the gospel, as Jesus prays for it, when it takes root in a community, changes and transforms people to such an extent that it points to the reality of the gospel being true. Because when Jesus enters into a group of people, they're not left unchanged, but they are changed. And this has happened in every community that the gospel has gone into over the last 2,000 years. You see it in the, in the immediate couple of years following this dinner in Acts chapter 4, verse 23. A description of the early church as it's just forming. Acts 4, 32. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the, thi of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was no needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as he had need. This is a radical, practical, visible oneness. This is an answer to Jesus' prayer. This is what he's hoping for. Something crazy, radical, countercultural to, to sell your stuff and to be willing for it to be distributed amongst your community to wherever the need is. That is an unusual thing to do. That is not something that has happened many times throughout history anywhere. But it is what happens as this community is formed in the early church. But this isn't just some distant Bible thing that happens. It just happens today. 
in all parts of the world. One of the clearest examples of this that I've had the opportunity to witness was some years ago when I stayed with some missionaries in a tribe in Ethiopia. We stayed with a tribe called the Mercy People. It's a people group about 2,000 strong. And at that point that we were there, there were about 50 or 60 Christians, all of which had become Christians in the last 10 to 15 years, so very new. The Bible, maybe only a third of it, had been translated into their language. And I got to witness how they lived their life, and there were some radical differences. When I was there, it was the, um, the clearing season. They were a farming people group. And so part of the annual cycle of farming, you, you clear the land of last year's stuff, all the overgrowth, so you've got some clear land ready to plant. And the average family in this tribe had a, had a plot of land the size of which it would take one man 30 days hard work to clear their field, to get it ready for planting. Now, what this group of Christians did, so what would normally happen, rather, is that for the month of, of clearing, everyone would go off to their own property, they'd kind of isolate, and each kind of man would clear their own land, their, their wife would kind of keep energy up and feed him and look after the kids, and, and you do that for 30 days. Now, 30 days of tough, hot work. But what the Christians started doing is they said, well, let's actually come together. And we got to join with them for a, a few days of this, where rather than just 30 guys go to their own field, on day one, 30 people come together, 30 men and their families, to one plot of land. And, the, and they just go nuts. They get the whole thing done, 30 days of work done in one day. Then the women and children are also hanging out, spending time together as well, which even then freed up, because there were multiple babysitters, freed up a bunch of the women to get working as well. And these ladies, I had a go of, of chopping stuff. These ladies put me to shame. They were like, like human whippersnippers made of muscle and grit, just, just powering through. And so the job got done faster as well. And so then day two, they get to the next field and do it all again for 30 days. And we would every now and then look at one of the other fields where there's just one person on their own slaving away. And the obvious question that I asked was, why doesn't this everyone do this? Like, this is obviously the, like, the sensible way to, to, to get this task done. And the answer I got was, someone has to be willing to be day 30. Someone's got to take on the risk that after 29 days of hard work, the full force is going to show up on the last day with the same energy and care and intentionality that happened on day one. And for the person on day one who's, who's got their field clear and ready to plant a crop, has to be able to withhold themselves from the pressure to go and start planting straight away. They've got to actually see the job through. And that just has, hadn't been able to happen. So this is, there's nothing in the Bible about saying this is how you should get your land clear. But the Christian community, as it formed, as this bond was known, empowered a group of people to be one. And it was one of the, just the major apologetics, one of the major things that was actually winning people in this tribe to the gospel. To see there is something in this that just leads to, leads to fruit, leads to unity. What might that look like today? For us, we're different. Most of us don't have fields to clear. What would it look like for us to have a radical countercultural unity that would be visible to the outside? Maybe it would be in defying some of the, the normal divides that exist in our city between age and stage. Typically, most people on like weekends spend time with people like them. Families hang out with families and go to the park. Younger singles go out on, on a Saturday night. People just kind of just, just get, keep with their own. Whereas what we're trying to be here as a church is a family. 
In Sydney, typically when, you've, when you marry off and have kids, people tend to turn pretty insular for a bunch of years. It's kind of like, well, I've got everything I need, I've got my life set up, I've just got to focus on what is here and what's before me. But as a church, maybe we could be radically pushing back on that. To see families that have got just open homes for, for single people to come and join us. Or maybe it's, it's, it's young people who, or, or people who are in a life stage where there's more energy to actually help those who don't. Or maybe it's if you're maybe older, maybe retired, maybe you've got a lot more time to actually invite younger people in and share, share some wisdom and share some hospitality. Maybe it's in, in the generosity that a church would experience and it just seems to flow so freely throughout the church. In meals being prepared for those who are sick or under the pump with a newborn. Maybe it's in a visible inclusion of people who otherwise would be deemed maybe too difficult or just too hard work to spend that much time with. Maybe it's through being known as a community that have got a willingness to push back against some of the anti-community doctrines that our society believes. That you've got to love yourself first. That's the most important thing. That you can have a, a thriving, deep social life as well as moving around every year or so to a new place. That your nuclear family is the only group that you've got a deep allegiance to. It's going to look like something. I don't know what other ideas you might have for that. What, what we're going to be doing this week as our city-like community started is spending some time thinking, what would it look like to be seen as radically, counterculturally united? But it will look like something. Because Jesus says that we, and hopes, that we would have a unity that would be noticeable. That people would see from the outside. And that's an encouraging thing, because on one hand it means we've got at our fingertips something we can point to and say, come look at this. Come look at this. This is amazing what's going on here. But on the flip side, it's daunting, isn't it? This is what Francis Chavis says in that book I mentioned before. He says, here Jesus is stating something else which is cutting. We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. Now this is frightening. Should we not feel some emotion at this point? If the world does not see this down-to-earth practical love, it will not believe that Christ was sent by the Father. So how are we going to go about becoming this type of community? We've just seen how Jesus ends his meal with his disciples. He finishes it with a prayer. But I think it would actually be nice to finish this series with the very beginning. We, we kind of jumped straight into it four weeks ago into what Jesus was saying, but we missed what had happened immediately before Jesus began his discourse. Because Jesus actually begins this meal that he's shared with his disciples with an open demonstration of what it looks like to be the type of community that he's trying to create. In John 13, Jesus sits down for this Passover meal in which they're remembering that God brought his people out of Egypt under the protection of the blood of a lamb and they just sit around and, and, and to gather and share this meal together in community. But in the midst of this meal of remembrance, Jesus actually stands up and perhaps discreetly he wraps a towel around his waist and he begins going to his disciples one by one and washing their feet. And it is a sacrificial, servant-hearted act. It is not something one of the guests would do. It is certainly not something that the leader of a group of people would do to get down on his knees 
and do something completely other-focused. And then Jesus says to them, because I'm your leader and you're my servants, you must do likewise. I'm showing you, modeling for you, what this community is to be, what is the mentality is to be in it. And then after that, he says this, in verse 34 and 35. He says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The oneness of the church, of the community of believers, is built on the foundation of a Lord who first loved, a Lord who first served. So two things. If we're going to be a loving community, we need to experience Jesus' love. Jesus does not say in those verses, love as you have seen me love someone else. He doesn't say, love as theoretically you imagine that I would love. He doesn't say anything, but what he says is this. He says, love as I have loved you. This is the foundation for a changed life, to experience firsthand a love like no other. The disciples, to, to experience this leader that they love and adore and who have been following, get down on his knees and clean their feet. And he says, love like I've loved you. But there's even more than that. Because the very next night, Jesus goes to the cross and he becomes, in a sense, our Passover lamb. He does something far more sacrificial and servant harder than washing feet. He dies for sinful, dirty, broken people like us. He washes us clean by his blood. And he says the same thing to us, love as I have loved you. You can't put out what you haven't received. We're not going to be a loving community because we ourselves are a hundred little wells of love that just naturally are spurting out with love and that's just going to hold us all together like glue. No, we all drink from the same well of Jesus' deep love for us. So just don't, don't hear me say, okay, if you're not feeling like any desire to love the people sitting around you, and be, don't hear me say, just come on, try harder. Just, you can do it, can't you? No, what we need to do is go back to the source. That Jesus loved us. His blood poured out for us is a sign of his love. That is why the church, when it's gathered as a community, looks not just at ourselves, but up to God. That's why we worship. But it's also why we do the Lord's Supper. It's why we take some bread, some juice, some wine. Because that is the thing that holds us together. Not literally the bread on the table, but what it signifies, which is that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was poured out. That is the thing that unites us with God and that is the shared bond we have with each other. We're going to be doing that today. It's an opportunity in that moment. If you're someone who's feeling like, I just don't know if I'm feeling God's love for me right now, just to pause, to reflect, and to think on the love that he has poured out for you. But then following that, from experiencing Jesus' love, which we must experience Jesus' love, we are then called to be imitators. Jesus says, as I have loved you, you must love one another. We are to be imitators of this kind of love, not a clean, I love you, you love me, easygoing type, mutually beneficial love, but a deeply sacrificial, servant-hearted love. The kind of love that has you washing feet and even dying for your brothers. If you just imagine, like, in your own head, what the perfect church would be, if you just try to picture, just for a second, just, like, what's the perfect church you'd want to be part of? I don't know what would come to mind for you, but my guess would be the first kind of image you had as 
the perfect church would be a bunch of really difficult people, a bunch of people who didn't necessarily agree on things. I bet it didn't involve a whole lot of feet washing going on. Often I think we think that the ideal community is going to be one that's just going to be easy, where my needs are going to be met. Hopefully I can meet some other needs as well, but it's just going to be kind of, kind of nice. But Jesus says from day one, this is going to be a community of feet washers, of love that is sacrificial. Now this has worked out real timely for us because, like Jess said, our city-like communities, they're starting this week. And I've been thinking a lot about our city-like communities over this last month as we, as we get them ready to start. I was reflecting, I've, over the last 14 years, I've been, I tried to count, I think, I think nine, maybe ten different communities. I've been chatting with your leaders about what's to come over this year. And I've been thinking about what is it that makes a community thrive? And the flip side is a bit darker, which is like what makes one fail. But, um, but what makes a, a community thrive of Jesus' followers? What's going to make our city-like communities thrive this year? isn't how good the tea collection is at the person's house. Even if they're a psycho that only has Earl Grey, it's, that's not going to be the thing. It's not going to be the quality of the cooks if you've, if you've gotten lucky and there's like five really great cooks in the group. It's not going to be the space that you meet in, the comfort of the sofa. It's not even going to be down to the, the breakdown of the people in the group in terms of like personality types. It's not going to be down to the fact of if there's the right balance between introverts and extroverts or whether people in the group were naturally best friends before they went in, or if they've got matching senses of humour, or if they've got kids or they don't, or if they're young or they're old. It's not even going to come down to whether your leaders are naturally excellent like leaders of Bible studies or organisers of dinner rosters. No, in my experience, and I think you're probably going to agree with this if you've been part of any form of kind of small group or Christian community, it's the thing that makes a group thrive, the thing that makes a, a community be the kind of community you want to be in, is whether or not we have the mindset of Jesus. Jesus who walked into this upper room ready to wash feet. Jesus who came to dinner not thinking, I hope these guys are going to meet, meet my needs tonight. Um, no, Jesus who walked in and looked around and said, how can I serve others? To not have the mentality of just saying, what am I going to get from this group of people? How could this group of people possibly help me along? But to say, what needs are here? What burdens can I carry? What help can I provide? What love can I give? Who can I be praying for? Because that is the shift that we need. We need something radical. Something that's going to be looked at as different. It's not radical to say, I promise I'm going to be there all the weeks I'm not tired. Like that's, there's, nothing, there's nothing particularly full on about that statement. But as we think about the next 48 weeks of 2023 with a few breaks here and there and the opportunity we have over that time to commit to a group of people and to love them, what would be possible if we actually did that? If it was our prayer to have Jesus' prayer fulfilled in us, that we would be a united, loving church. I guarantee that if we do this, it will be noticed. I can't know the, the timeline God will work on or, or the, the fruit that he might bring. But I do know that in a city that is lonely, fractured, with a lot of empty relationships and a lot of need, a community that is committed to sacrificial, servant-hearted love cannot go unnoticed. I'm going to pray that this would be us as a church as we head into this week and to this year. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, Lord, we just have this awareness of our own failure. Uh, it's really nice to envision um, a community that just deeply loves and is deeply united, but we know that because the community is made up of people like us who are flawed and broken, that we often do fall far short of that. I just want to thank you that you have loved us, that you have washed our feet, not expecting to have your feet washed in return, that you died for us, not, not because we earned it or because we would be able to be like you, but because we couldn't. And we just want to thank you for this grace. And Lord, for anyone in this room who is feeling detached from your love, I ask that in a moment as they reflect, as they think on the words that are sung behind me, as they walk up the back of the room, as they take some bread, as they take some juice, that they would encounter your love in you, that they would know that you loved them. You did something even better than kneeling and washing their feet. You died for them. And we just pray that that would just infiltrate our hearts and our community, that we would be a community of love and of unity, that as we grow, that we would be a church that just has this yeah, chaotic mix of, of personalities and people types and, and age and stage and everything else, just that we would be a, a church that is, that is different and diverse but centered around you and your love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.